Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. We're going to begin in Philippians chapter 1. Pretty uh, clear message to the church today. Uh, Maybe in an indirect way. But I'm going to be working through the entire chapter of First of Philippians, <clears throat> and I and I want to get to the end. I'm going to make quite a few comments uh, through, and then we'll get to the end and make some summations. And uh, so this message is primarily to to the church, but I hope that everyone uh, here is uh, is encouraged to know what is next. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So we know that, and I'm not going to break everything down quite this minuscule, but these are some pretty important things that Paul uh, begins to teach us, uh, maybe intuitively, but There's a couple of things I want to bring to light. First, Paul includes Timothy in this letter. That's incredibly rare that Paul would say Paul and Timothy to to a church. It just doesn't do that very often. And we'll explain in a few moments why, why Timothy had some credibility with this church that he may not have had with other churches that Paul was writing to. Paul also does not assert his apostolic authority over them. Most churches receive a, uh, some sort of an introduction where Paul is claiming to have authority because his reputation is kind of on the line or he's having to defend a certain thing that he has taught before. But here he waxes through all of that and he seems to be much more approachable. He's much softer. He's much easier. He has a more fatherly, disciple-making kind of a mindset as you work through Philippians than he has in any other letter that he writes to any other church. Now, by no means am I saying that Paul is wrong when he does assert that, um, that dominance or that, uh, you know, the, the authority of being an apostle in other letters, but here he just seems to be a lot more approachable. And he begins by calling both he he himself and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus. Again, interesting way to say this. Now, Paul calls himself this often, but the Greek word here is doulos. Not that you need to remember that, but it's a very specific word. And it means a slave, not by something that I do, but an identity. He is identifying here, not by uh, the actions that he produces, but by his identification as a slave. Now, this is important because in Deuteronomy chapter 15, Uh, Moses is giving the law here about slavery. And he actually says that if you do have a slave that you have possession over and responsibility for, they serve you for six years. In the seventh year, you cut them loose and they, and they go, they go elsewhere. They're free. And there's an exception though in Deuteronomy 15 that says, unless the slave doesn't want to be free, 
Maybe their life is better as a result of being a slave to you. Maybe you take better care of them, treat them like family. In cases where slaves do not want their freedom, then you take them to a, uh, like a, like a doorframe of a house and you put an awl in their ear and you mark their ear and they're going to be a lifer. So anytime you see someone with a big hole in their ear, you know that they belong to somebody. They belong to somebody, right? Now, I know that, don't read anything into that, all right? You can have holes in your ears, uh, ladies. Just let that go. That's not the point. The point is, it's, a, it's obviously there are going to be times in a slave's life where they say, I love my master. I want to continue serving my master. My master takes good care of me. This person moves from doing the work of a slave to being a doulos. They are identifying as this from now on. Now, the important thing is to see what Paul is saying. He's saying that I have served myself before. I am serving Christ now, and I want to be known as a lifer. I am 100% committed in my freedom. I am committed to serving Jesus Christ, and he has marked my life, both Timothy and myself. I feel like it's worth teaching the importance of belonging to Jesus Christ because life under his authority is better than life under my own authority. And he's writing to the saints, saints, all believers who are in Philippi. They're not saints because of their actions, but they are saints positionally. It means it's how God sees them, not necessarily how they see themselves. We've talked a little bit about that already today. You know, uh, there's a lot of talk about sainthood in the world. And the Catholic Church, you know, they, they believe that a person can reach, reach saint status you know, there's a pathway for that, actually. The first thing, I've actually did a little bit of research, uh, a person can't be a saint and still be alive. Uh, so you have to die. That's the first requirement of sainthood. Secondly, you have to wait five years before you're eligible because they want the emotion of your death to kind of be uh, to kind of wear off. After five years, then someone in your community of where you ministered can call you a servant of God. And then there's an interview process that goes on. Did this person live a life of servanthood to those that they were living in community with? If the answer is yes, then they want to see is there, number three, a pattern that is a life of heroic virtue. Meaning, did they live their life ever, everywhere they went that most people would say that person is a hero of the faith? Fourthly, there have to be at least two miracles performed as a result of a person's prayer life. If this is founded to be true, the fifth step is canonization, which means that there is a vote to decide if someone is a saint or not. Pretty simple process. Uh, you know, that's why there are, well, there are so many of them, but, uh, uh, but anyway, it's, a, it's actually at least a... Um, a predictable process uh, that can be gone through. This is not what God had in mind at all. This isn't God's way. God knows that there is not a chance that we can arrive to sainthood on our own merit. 
It would be impossible. He knows that we could never be holy on our own. We need holiness, his holiness. We need his son's holiness applied to our lives, which is why Paul told the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become what? The righteousness of God. What does it mean to be righteous? Well, the easy answer is to say to be in right standing with God. So to be claim, to claim to be righteous which would mean that my life can bear the scrutiny of God's presence. And so if we're going to become the righteousness of God, there is not a chance of us getting to that place because of the good deeds that we do or the way that we live our life. We need the righteousness of Jesus Christ applied to our, to our life. And so when we become the righteousness of God through Jesus, Jesus gives us his position to stand. This means, and don't, you know, this is very important. When the father sees us positionally in Christ, he actually sees Jesus. So it's very important for us to understand that we should not take that lightly. When the father sees us, he sees his son. He responds to us as his Son. Now, again, that really affects the way we see our, it must affect the way we see ourselves. So when we see ourselves the way God sees us, then it is a joy and, and a humility to remember who I am in Jesus. So it was a joy for Paul to remember that too. So I say, wow, you know, you need to hurry up, Pastor. We're a long way into this sermon and we're just a couple of words in. Very important for, for Paul to exert. He is not telling them who he is. He's reminding them who they are. He writes to a couple of other people too. Now, uh, to, to bishops and to deacons. So this positional righteousness is called justification, just as if I had never sinned. Now, remember, this church is is formed about 10 to 12 years ago. I mean, it's easy to, to kind of date a few things by who was reigning and who was ruling and those sort, certain things. So about 11 years ago is when Paul began this church. And if you remember in Acts chapter 15, the Bible says that, that, uh, that Paul was in the northern part of the country and he wanted to go into Asia to preach. It was his desire to preach the gospel to Asia. But when he got up there to the border, it says the Spirit of God forbid him. Now that's significant. The Spirit of God forbid him. So he said, well, what do we want to do? We want to go to Bithynia and we want to preach there. And he goes to the border of Bithynia and the Spirit of Christ forbid him there. And so Paul goes down into Troas and he begins to pray about where God would direct him. And one night while he was sleeping in, in Troas, he and Silas and Timothy, Paul receives a vision of a Macedonian man saying, come over and share the gospel with us. And so Paul begins the trek, Paul, Silas, and Timothy begin to trek over into to Philippi, which was the capital of Macedonia. And so while they were there, you know, uh, be, I know what we would say is, well, it'd be really great if God spoke to me in visions, uh, I, then I would know what to do, right? But the truth of the matter is, recognize this, Paul already was saying yes. This isn't God giving Paul new information. This is God giving Paul clarity to what he had already called Paul to. What, what Paul wanted to do was good. It was good, 
but God has a plan for a person's life. And as we say yes to God, he continues to give greater clarity. What does it mean for, for the Holy Spirit to forbid? What, what does that mean? The gate was down? I mean, is, is Paul just inferring something in his spirit? Well, we wouldn't know. When he gets to Bithynia, what is it that the Spirit of Jesus would forbid him from going in? How would we know what that is? Sensitivity. That's how we would know what it is. Sensitivity to the Spirit of God. I know what God wants for me, but to be able to know specifically, we need sensitivity and discernment to know what God wants next. Now listen, most people want to know what God wants next, and they want these visions and dreams, and if God would just tell me, I might or might not do it. But what God desires first now I say, what God demands first is yes. Paul has already revealed that he is 100% committed and devoted to doing whatever it is that God wants him to do. And he surrounds himself with sensitive people who can confirm or rebuke what Paul is sensing in the Spirit. It'd been easy for God to say at the very beginning, no, Paul, Philippi, Philippi. I mean, that would have been easy. If God's going to give visions, why did he give it when he was headed up north? I think because he wanted to get him more sensitive. I think as he was walking, he was becoming more and more dependent upon the Spirit of God. I think he was also learning that sometimes the Spirit says no. I think he also, God was trying to connect Paul to that Macedonian man so that Paul could begin to fall in love. You know, whenever, whenever God called uh, my wife and I here, I don't talk about this very often. Uh, it's 15 years ago this month, actually. And when God called us here, I said as my screensaver, Lake Dardanelle. And Kathy Godbold sent me a church directory. And before I got here, I had already been praying for many of you and begin to see myself. And I was so embarrassed when people from our church in Tennessee would come into my office having no idea that that beautiful scenery was a place my heart was already going toward. And when we got here, we belonged already because we'd invested prayer. We'd invested time. I had begun imagining what life would be like in the River Valley with many of you. If you ever want to know what Kathy Godbold thinks about you, you can ask me to see that directory because she wrote little bios for everybody in the margins. That's not true. I made that up. Don't pressure her. <laughs> well, you know, if she wrote it, it's going to be sweet. Uh, but anyway, I think this is one of the things that Paul is getting from God is to be able to see someone saying, we need you come to us. Now, while God's direction is very important, it's also really great to make a connection with the people that you're going to serve. And so there was no doubt that Paul and Timothy and Silas went to Philippi. They went to worship down by the river and they found a lady that was a worshiper of God, just didn't know what she was doing. But her name was Lydia and she was a very uh, special lady. She was a business owner in town. She sold purple. I'm not going to get into all of her story. But when Paul began to break down the truth about Jesus, she was already saying yes. She said yes to Jesus, goes home. All of her family is saved and baptized. Uh, one day, Paul was walking down the street, and this little demon-possessed girl keeps following him. You remember what she's saying? Like, oh, these guys speak of God. And, and I think, well, that's kind of what you would want people to say of you. But Paul turns around and rebukes her. She's a fortune teller, little girl, by the way, making her owner's bank lots of money, right? 
And so Paul turns around, and I love it. I, I don't know why, if it's a flannel graph from childhood or what, but I, in my mind, I can see it as clear as if I was there. Paul just turned around and said, stop it, get out of her. And boom, it's gone. And she's delivered and her owners are furious. Right? That was their livelihood, right? So they go trump charges up on Paul. Paul and Silas, not Timothy, Paul and Silas go to prison. This is Acts 16. And uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't say it in the scripture, but I am convinced that Timothy, young Timothy, uh, didn't get indicted. He was just too young, probably a teenager, late teenager. And what Timothy does is go back to the family where they're staying, to Lydia's. And this brand new church, Lydia, the business owner, her family, new Christians, potentially maybe some of their neighbors by now, a little former demoniac child, right? And they're having church. And now Timothy is their teacher for the whole time that Paul and Silas are in prison. I think that's why Paul said, Paul and Timothy write to you, because Paul had credibility among this church that he hadn't had in any other church that Paul had, had started. And so, you know, Paul and Silas are singing hymns at midnight. The building is shaken, comes down. Philippian jailer, uh, I'm, I'm going through this pretty quick, but the Philippian jailer knows that Paul and Silas surely have run loose in death penalty for him for sure. And Paul says, well, don't, don't do yourself harm. We're still here. What in the world? What kind of person stays here? The Philippian jailer and all of his family get saved and baptized. And so you start having this ragtag, very diverse Philippian church that's being founded. Uh, can you imagine diversity? Of, I mean, that's, that's a pretty diverse bunch of people sitting around in a small group in somebody's living room uh, being led by an 18-year-old. I mean, that's, it's pretty, pretty, pretty weird, but I love how the gospel does that. The gospel is a, neutral, it's just a neutralizer that establishes one people. You know, whether you have a lot of money or whether you're Rome's representative or whether you don't know who your parents are. It doesn't matter who you are when you're in the room of God's people because it's a unifier. We're all one. We are becoming one with Christ and we are becoming one with each other, just like a marriage, which is what Christ and his church represents. It's one of the most beautiful things of a church. And I think one of the most, I guess, I guess one of the most ugly things in a church as well. One of the most beautiful things in a, in a church is when you've got multiple generations, multiple backgrounds all coming together, worshiping the Lord, lifting their hands, shaking hands, encouraging one another. What a beautiful picture. One of the ugliest things in, in a church is when there are little groups of like-minded people huddling up together. It's one of the ugliest things in a church, little factions and groups where who belongs and who doesn't belong. Well, you don't have that in Philippi. So about 11 years has passed and Paul is writing them back a letter to the saints. And this church has now established itself with some organization uh, to the bishops, to the deacons. The bishops at that time is the Greek word is episkopos, not that that matters, but it was a very normalized word. It just meant leaders, leaders of any kind. In fact, it was the church of Jesus Christ that began to change the usage or the definition of that word uh, episkopos. It's where the word episcopal comes from now. And, and what it means is, is just a generalized leader. 
but what it came to be known as, as spiritual leaders given oversight to the spiritual climate and development of a church. And so deacons means the, those who meet the practical needs of the church. Now watch this. Paul is saying, I am under Christ as a servant. I'm a lifer. My life for his. And the saints are under his authority because your righteousness comes from him. The spiritual leaders are servants because they're under the authority of God. And the practical servants of the church, meeting the daily needs of the congregation, everybody in these first couple of verses are under each other. We're all just servants, all in one body together. All right, now we're going to shift it into high gear. It's important to see those things because it sets the tone not only for this message, but for the book. What Paul is doing is this. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it would have been easier for Paul to have said, grace and peace to you, but he doesn't. He breaks them out separately, all right? So I want us to, I want us to learn something this morning, teach something this morning that I think will help us understand even bigger things later on. So he lists them in order. Grace to you and then peace to you. Grace to, peace from. Very, very specific. Grace first, then peace. Peace follows grace in this epistle, but he also follows grace in life. So, we talk about what, what is grace. Grace is unmerited favor. What does that mean? Well, let me boil it all down and just give you a new definition for what grace is. Grace is what God gives. Okay? Grace is what God gives. So anytime you're receiving anything from God, that is God's grace that is giving. You don't deserve it, but God is a giver, and he doesn't, he doesn't respect who deserves it and who doesn't deserve it. So when God gives, it doesn't matter what you've done. So grace is when God gives. Peace is what you receive when you recognize what God gives. Right? So grace is when God is giving. Peace is what you get when you recognize and acknowledge God is the giver. So when whatever it is that happens in your life, whether it's a prison sentence or whether it's a job loss, whatever the circumstance, maybe you're scratching your head and wondering, what is the rest of my life going to look like? This situation I didn't plan on. We know that everything, everything is orchestrated by God's allowance, is it not? Whatever it is, God has allowed. And when you can have, when you recognize even prison time, as God's grace for you, there's a peace that comes. Does that make sense? You say, man, I think you're reading into that. No, I think we've been misunderstanding where peace comes for a long time. Peace is not circumstantial. Peace comes from a recognition that God is at work in my life. Now, you may not agree with what God is doing. That's the hard part, is learning to agree with God about what God wants from you. Learning that sometimes God says no to Asia, sometimes God says no to Bithynia, so that he can say yes to what? Prison. I don't think Paul had, when he saw the Macedonians say, come over here, in that vision, wasn't prison. So, we live in a world that talks a lot about peace. 
You hear peace all the time. Well, we need peace, the world peace. We need peace in our country. We need peace with our government. We need peace in our families. Everything's wrecked, right? Trouble everywhere you turn. I think the reason that's true is because we don't recognize God's grace. We don't recognize his placement in our life and what God is doing and his sovereignty in our life. And because of that, if you're going to misapply grace, then you're going to be misunderstanding peace. And so we begin to settle for society's version of peace. And that has to be circumstantial. I get my way, I'm happy, I'm at peace. But circumstances change and my peace goes away. So we're always chasing after ideal circumstances. So peace becomes contingent upon circumstances, not upon God's grace. So if you're taking notes, I would write this down. God's peace always follows a recognition of God's grace. I think we would say something along the lines of we need to count our blessings. Whenever you feel turmoil in yourself, we need to begin to go back and look and see what all God has done. I'm telling you, when you see what God has done, you'll have peace in your life. Paul continues, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for what? I'm always thanking God for you, all making my prayer with joy. My prayer my, for you, all making my prayer with joy. Paul is saying, while he is in prison, chained to a guard, he says, whenever I pray, I don't know how to pray without thanking God for you. And when I, when I think of you, it fills my prayer with joy. What do you think? What do you think Paul was praying about? What kind of prayers is he praying? Put yourself in Paul's situation. Yes, Lord, I will. I want to go to Asia. No. I want to go to Bithynia. No. I want you to go to Philippi. Starts this little ragtag church. Church is established 10 to 11 years ago. And now he is chained to a guard in Rome. Right? This is not the ministry, I think, that Paul would like write out his biography ahead of time. This isn't, this isn't, these things are not going to be on the list. What would your prayer life look like, chained to a guard in Rome? You know what prayers, uh, Paul's prayer life looks like? These people that fill his face with joy, who he smiles when he thinks of them. I would be praying for release. I'd be praying self-centered prayers. I'd be praying prayers maybe along the lines of, God, what are you doing? Why won't you set me free? Hey, you remember that time in Philippi when I was in prison? Let's play that game again. I remember, I remember what song I was singing. I'll sing that song again. That's what I would be doing. I'm going to follow the formula of what got me out of prison last time. But you know what Paul is doing? He's praying for all the churches that he's established. And that's where he draws joy, thinking of others. I would be thinking of myself. Paul doesn't, doesn't do that. <laughs> Here, you know what the gospel requires? A miserable prison. You know what the gospel requires here? It requires being chained to a guard. Why does Paul receive joy when he remembers and prays over them? Remember, he was sitting around the coffee table and they were talking about how good God was, sharing their testimonies of answered prayer. 
good times, playing games and just enjoying each other in the living room? No, that's not it. Verse five, because of your partnership in the gospel, not your partnership with, with me. Paul doesn't say your partnership with me. Paul says your partnership in the gospel. Their spiritual growth causes Paul joy from the first day until now. I remember, I remember when I led you all to the Lord. I remember the day that you were baptized. I remember the joy. And now I have watched for the last 11 years, I've watched your growth. I've watched your sensitivity. And when I think about you, I pray and I thank God upon every remembrance of you and how in this miserable circumstance that I find myself in, I'm able to experience joy when I think about your partnership in the gospel. Is that how you pray? Maybe we need a prison. Maybe we need difficulty to come into our life. Maybe we've had it too easy for far too long because most of our prayers are just self-centered. God, do this. God, do this. God, make me this. Make me do this. Make me feel this way because I really don't. God, this is what I want. This is my laundry list of things or my laundry list of people. I wonder how often we are thankful for watching God develop the people that we've ministered to. Like John, in 3 John verse 4, he said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. You want joy in your life? Minister to the point where you can see the people that you've invested in bearing fruit for the gospel. Be a disciple maker don't settle for being a disciple. Be a disciple maker. And you have joy in the midst of prison. Back to Philippi. Verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, he's talking about salvation, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Here, the day of Jesus Christ is referred to as that final day and our entrance day into glory. The plan of God will be completed in their life. Not their plan. The plan of God will be completed. The reason that God saved you will be completed when Jesus takes you into his glory. I am convinced that what God starts, God sees all the way through. And I cannot for the life of me understand why Christians believe that God is going to prompt and start something spiritual in our life and then let us go. I, don't, I mean, it would be... It, that's terrifying to think of that. Verse 7, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you all are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for, all, for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is what Paul said. He didn't say anything about himself leading them to the Lord. He said, partakers with me, partners with me of grace. Paul I'm, I'm just as needy as you are. We are partakers together. Paul isn't focused on potential celebrity status that he probably could have had. He wasn't looking for sympathy what Paul wanted to understand is that he needed the same grace that they needed. So when you see God's grace, you can have God's peace. When you see God at work, there is peace in every circumstance. And I'm paraphrasing here, but it seems that Paul is saying, you guys are awesome. Verse 9. And we have an and, not a but. And. You are 
awesome. You've been partakers of God's grace. It's evident by your ministry. It's evident by the way you serve one another, by the way you see yourself, your partnership in the gospel with me. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Notice what Paul is praying for. You guys have loved like no one else. And I pray that you will learn to love more and more with all knowledge and discernment. Why? So that you can only approve what is excellent. So that you won't settle for good enough. But that you will know how to only settle for God's absolute best. That's what grace will do. When you're able to constantly have a reflection of God, that's what grace will do. It'll have you continue moving forward and choosing only what glorifies God. I'm telling you, I, as, a, as a pastor, I have, I've seen it so many times where, where we just uh, we lose sight. We lose sight of growth. And we begin to be satisfied with only getting by. Salvation, check mark. We start asking ourselves the question, what can I get away with? Can a Christian do this? Should a Christian do that? Instead of what brings God the most glory? You know when that's your question? There are no other questions. What brings God the most glory in choosing it? Verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, what, that what has happened to me, remember Paul's under house arrest, you're wanting to be heard by Caesar. And as a citizen, Roman citizen, Paul, Paul could request to be heard, kind of like the uh, uh, Supreme Court. I want Caesar to hear. And, and Paul's going to use that to proclaim the gospel. Paul believes that he's most likely awaiting execution. But what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul most likely was in Rome for two years, chained to guards, taking turns all day long. Can you imagine? It also says that Paul had enough freedom that the Jews in Rome were able to come to the house where he was kept and he would teach those Jews every week. And so there were many multitudes of people who were coming. And those guards kept listening to these messages of Jesus. And, and Paul waxing eloquently with this apologetic and these defenses of the gospel. And these Jews were being enlightened. And these guards were coming to know, to know who the Lord was. <laughs> Paul runs through this pedigree in Philippians 3, verses 4 through 6. He says, If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. So Paul is saying there is no one whose pedigree is higher than mine. Remember who he is? Everybody knew who Paul was. Everybody knew. It wasn't that long ago Paul was slaughtering Christians in the streets. Everybody in the Roman Empire knew Paul. Now Paul's in prison to Roman guards in Rome, and everybody knows who Paul is. So what is, that, what is he saying? What is he talking about? How did this fierce Jew turn into this dynamite gospel proclaimer? He had everybody's ear. 
Listen to Philippians chapter 4 as the, as the letter ends. Philippians chapter 4, verse 21 and 22. Paul said, Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you. Chiefly, they that are of Caesar's household. This is the thing that I feel like the Lord wanted me to share with, to, with us today. Paul wasn't chained to the guard. God took Paul to Rome so that the guards could be chained to him. Yeah, I think about circumstances and sometimes we, we have to go through things that we would never want to go through. Sometimes we have prisons. Sometimes we have droughts. Sometimes we have difficulties. Sometimes we have to go through things. You'd never, you'd never write them out for yourself. But sometimes the Lord uses those things to develop in us, to cultivate us. We'll get there in a moment. Verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. I mean, look at the terrible things that happen to me right now. It's like everything, Paul is so limited. And yet, brothers have become more confident in the Lord. People are speaking with much less fear out in the street. we got proclaimers of the gospel that are out to get me to make life more difficult for me. But, but you know what? They're preaching Jesus. Who cares what happens to me? What matters is making much of Jesus. Verse 15, some indeed preach Christ with, from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. I think of, of these leaders in the church that are being handed over to each other and how the gospel is, I was in Morocco and we go over there and we do work. Many of, some of you have been there too. And, and when we leave, they scratch their head and they say, what were those people doing here? And there's people left behind to tell the story. I remember when I was in China and Watch Mani helped establish the three self church in China so at least the gospel could get out. And the state, you know, kind of is responsible for everything and kind of holds everything down. But, but I remember they would say, you cannot talk about the resurrection. You cannot talk about the second coming. You cannot talk about salvation in these churches. And I visited several churches. There was one place I went to a living room and you sit down in the living room and here's how we sang, uh, about the goodness of God, we just move our lips to each other. Great is thy faithfulness, singing it to these Chinese Christians. And I went to the, one of the largest Christian churches in all of China. It was, there were thousands of people in the room, and the preacher got up, did a great job of just working through Scripture, and then the pastor said, if any of you would like to join one of our discipleship groups... Our leaders are holding banners all around the building. If you'd like to join one, you can go join with them. And I thought, that's, that's a very interesting thing. And so I began to inquire. And what they were doing is they were turning these folks over to these little small house churches where they could talk about the resurrection. They could talk about the second coming. They could talk about the need for regeneration. And so I think that's what Paul is saying here. To maximize the effectiveness of opportunities contacts would continue to follow up. That's what Paul was saying. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. 
Maybe they're jealous, getting ahead of Paul. Maybe they're saying, ha, I'm better than Paul. I didn't get caught. He got caught. And they accuse Paul of all sorts of things. But notice how it affects Paul. Paul says, what then? What difference does it make? God is in charge of my circumstances. They can't make it better or worse for me than what God wants or allows only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Back to verse 19, we see the formula. Prayer versus the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ equals joy. Paul said, joy is tied to my anticipation of deliverance. Deliverance from prison, Paul said, doesn't matter to me. I don't care if I'm delivered from prison or not. But I'm going to have joy regardless because I know God's going to deliver me. Maybe from prison, maybe from this body. But they can't separate me from joy. Joy comes from peace. Peace comes from seeing God's grace. Verse 22, almost finished. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Fruitful labor for the kingdom. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Uh, Paul, Paul isn't given a choice of whether he lives or dies. What he is saying is, I don't know which one I want to root for. I don't know if I want to root for death or if I want to root for fruitful labor. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Well, so convinced of this, it's like he answers his own question. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So here's the summation statement. The only thing that and this is a very specific word here too, only, means that you alone don't worry about anything else, only concern yourself with this. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or I'm absent, may hear of you standing firm in the spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Don't worry about me, only focus on one thing, being worthy of the gospel. Don't tie your faith to my outcome, you might be disappointed but tie yourself to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where your joy comes from, walking in obedience to Jesus Christ. This is going to keep you filled up. Otherwise, you're going to be disappointed. You're going to be frustrated. When your enemies come against you, you're going to be fearful. You're going to turn around. When you are in control, there's no telling what you will do. Verse 18, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that of God. Your joy during opposition will be perfect proof that the gospel changes people's minds and eyes and lives. Verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw, saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Now, look at this. Paul says a part of having joy is experiencing the suffering of Jesus Christ. That it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ. That you shouldn't only believe, 
but also suffer. Granted to you. That word is charizomai, which comes from the word charis, which is where we get our word grace. It is a grace to you to believe and to suffer. It is a grace that God gives that we might have to go to prison for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a grace that God is able to give joy in the midst of prison. It is a grace. So regardless, when I see grace and I recognize it's of God's hand, even if he calls me into suffering, even if he calls me into darkness, whatever God calls me into, I can say it is a grace that God gives a settled peace which produces joy. I just, it's interesting to me that a jail sentence didn't put Paul's ministry on hold. And when you look at the culmination, listen, I have taken first Philippians chapter one. They're not all going to be like this. I'm running through this chapter very quickly. I know there's probably six sermons in this first chapter. And as I tried to start meeting those out, the Lord said, no, it's all one thing. And the one thing is this. I want you to look at every circumstance, whether it's Paul's name, whether it's Paul's legacy, whether it's Paul's celebrity status, whether it's Paul's imprisonment, whether it's the gospel itself, whatever, whether it's Paul's prayer life, everywhere you turn as Paul is establishing, it's never about Paul. It's never about him. Every circumstance in this first chapter of this letter should be about him. His misery, his fear, his complaints, his criticism, his selfishness, his entitlement, his plea for help. Whatever, every circumstance should be about him in the flesh, but you won't find it not one time. In fact, every time somebody tries to make it about him, he flips it. I know that today, probably most of us are not worried about a prison sentence. Not today. The courts aren't in session on Sundays. But chances are we're not too worried about having to go to prison. I mean, a time may come where we may have to consider that, um, you know, maybe not in most of our lifetimes, but eventually. Uh, and before we think that's not possible, many countries around the world now already face that. They can't do what we're doing even today. I'm not saying we should be preparing ourselves for prison. What I'm saying that whatever it is that you're experiencing that's a setback, quit making it about you. Whatever circumstances you can't control right now, stop making it about you. That's what all that I've said so far has built to the fact because God wants somebody or many people in here right now to hear that. Whatever it is, whatever it is in your life that you can't control, it's not about you anyway. Whatever it is that you can't control is a grace from God so that you could be at peace when you recognize it. See, prison didn't get to sideline side the gospel. Prison doesn't get a sideline ministry or being able to see the production of fruit in other people's lives or the investment of a chain guard to your wrist 
or the Jews that are coming out of the woodwork to hear the Apostle Paul preach and teach. There's not, there's not one thing in this world that can get in the way of God's peace in your life. Not one. Because everything is a grace. All things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose, right? I don't care what it is in your life that you wish you didn't have. It's a grace from God to help you become what he's calling you to be. And you can fight against it and you can kick the gate down into Asia and you can go in there and you can preach the gospel. But if that's not God's plan, everything you do after your disobedience is going to fail. And it can all be good things. Sometimes God says no to good so he can say yes to a prison, to a bad thing. So that Caesar's household can say, greetings, brothers, in Philippi, we're one with you. Paul really sets the tone here. And I'm telling you, even in the nuanced state, it's very, very clear in English. But even in the original, as Paul is writing it, it is so clear that Paul gets it so evidently that there's never been anything that's been about me. I really think that if we want to experience joy, the way you experience joy is by experiencing peace. The way you receive peace is by experiencing God's graces. Just tweaking the way you see every one of these circumstances, just tweaking, tweaking the way we see our circumstances. And always looking for the guard that's chained to you rather than criticizing the guard you're chained to. you imagine if Paul would have just kept giving those guards an earful? How effective would that be? So this morning, as we close... I want you to hear the Lord say, circumstances in your life, the guards, the setbacks, those things are there because God orchestrated them to teach you something, to give you an opportunity that you wouldn't have otherwise. Do you want peace? Do you have peace? Is there always an excuse, always a reason Always a grumble, a complaint, a negative criticism, always something that's holding you back from what you want. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Been around the world this morning. But I pray in the stillness of this moment. your Holy Spirit would convict us. We, we have built our lives to be contingent upon fixed circumstances. As we look through Philippians 1, at least, we see every opportunity that Paul has to be entitled. And yet there is this settled peace that's on him a joy that comes to his smiling face when he thinks about partners in the gospel. And when there are 
envious, jealous other preachers preaching Jesus. Paul says, as long as they're preaching Jesus, people are coming to know Jesus. What difference does it make what people think about me? Lord, I pray that we would have that. And I, because of our positional righteousness in you, we can have that way of thinking. We just need to repent of our selfishness, of our fear, of our controlling natures. Lord, help us to see ourselves as saints, not because we're worthy, but because you are. And help us to walk in the joy of that, of your work through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Will you stand with me, please? I really want this this message to be an encouragement to you. And yet I'm convinced that the only way to encouragement is, is to lay everything down before the Lord. ask you just to bow your head and close your eyes. You've endured a lot this morning. I appreciate your patience. But if you're here this morning and there are some things in your life that maybe you just can't see how God is at work. Maybe you feel lonely. Maybe you feel alone. Maybe you wonder if God is still you know, in charge of your life or working in your life or Would you slip your hand up? Say, Pastor Blaine, I need, I need prayer this morning. I see that hand. Anybody's hands all over the place. Just need to know God is still moving. God is still working. Anybody else? Just slip your hand. That hand. Maybe it's not about the past. Maybe it's about the future. Maybe you need to know, what God, what, what are you? I'm standing here at the border of Asia. I'm standing right here at the border of Bithynia. And, and I'm beating down the door and you just won't say yes. This may be a children's church question. But would you be honest enough to say, if the Lord would reveal to me what he wants for me, I would say yes. Would you raise your hand? If the Lord would just be clear, I will say yes. I am already saying yes. Okay. All over the place. Um, So, I don't want this to sound heavy. But your yes may require a stint in Rome. Just survive Rome and you'll see fruit for your labor. If you want to talk to to me this morning or maybe pray together before you go, I want to be able to pray with you. Let's pray together right now. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We ask that your will be accomplished through our lives corporately, collectively as a church. 
Lord, I'm just struck by how many excuses Paul overlooks. And I think about all the times that all we bring is a complaint, a correction, a criticism, an excuse. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us to, regardless of our circumstances, recognize that you are at work, acknowledge that you are at work, and be at peace. And may your Spirit give us clarity, direction, and joy. And may the joy of the Lord be our strength that we move. In Jesus' name we pray. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.